Welcome to this episode in the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Rob Garrett, a member of the Naval History team within the Sea Power Centre Australia. On 3 July 1947, the Commonwealth Defence Council formally announced the creation of the Royal Australian Navy's Fleet Air Arm, 75 years ago this year. To mark this anniversary, we are going to look at the formation of this important element of the Navy. A fleet air arm recruitment advertisement at the time said, here is a chance that can never be repeated, the chance to be among the first, among the chosen few. Well, to tell this story, I am joined by two of the chosen few. They are Commodore Toz Dadswell, who was joining us from Armidale. He joined the Royal Australian Naval College in 1946 and after gaining his bridge watchkeeping certificate, specialised in flying. During his flying career, he commanded 816 Squadron of Gannett anti-submarine aircraft. Notably, he witnessed, from the air, the collision of the aircraft carrier Melbourne with the destroyer Voyager on the night of 10 February 1964. Later executive officer, and for a short time, the commanding officer of Melbourne, he also commanded HMAS Albatross, the naval air station at Nowra. Importantly, also to this podcast, he conducted the interviews for the oral history of Admiral Sir Victor Smith, which were subsequently published. Sir Victor will loom large in this podcast. Also joining me is Commodore Norman Lee. He joined the Navy in 1948 and undertook pilot training with the Royal Australian Air Force at Point Cook. Graduating as a probationary pilot, he then went to the UK and learned to fly off aircraft carriers with the Royal Navy before flying Firefly aircraft off HMAS Sydney during the Korean War. He later went on to command the frigate Kringborough, the destroyer Vampire, number 724 Naval Air Squadron, and HMAS Albatross, the Naval Air Station at Nowra. Norman retired from the Navy in 1981. Finally, I am joined by Commodore Jack McCaffrey, whose flying career was spent mainly in Grumman S2 trackers, flying from HMAS Melbourne and Nowra. Currently, he is a visiting fellow at both the University of Wollongong and the University of New South Wales Canberra at the Defence Academy. He co-authored Wings of Gold, the story of Australian pilots and observers who trained with the United States Navy 1966 to 1968. He is currently writing a history of the Pacific Patrol Boat Program for the Navy. Thank you all for joining me. First off, let's set the scene. Jack McCaffrey, why was the Fleet Air Arm formed and what was the scale of this initiative? Well, thanks, Rob. But uh, before addressing the question directly, I'd like to make the point that the RAN was interested in aviation almost from its inception. Uh, and aircraft flew from RAN cruisers in both world wars. But the formation of the RAF, in, that's the Royal Australian Air Force, in 1921, placed all military aviation under control of that organisation in the interwar years and during the Second World War. That fact, plus the tough economic times right through the 20s and especially the 30s, meant that aviation really did not prosper in the Navy after 1918. Nevertheless, aviation did play a major part, obviously, in the Second World War, and it was vital in the Pacific and the role played by carrier-based aviation in the Pacific War was highlighted by battles such as Coral Sea, Midway, Leyte Gulf, and of course, generally speaking, in, in the island hopping campaigns. This was not lost on the RAN leadership, uh, which knew that the Navy had to be reconstituted after the war and determined that the future of the Navy should be based on the carrier battle group concept. That would provide an independently strong naval force 
able to play a full role in regional affairs. So at the beginning of 1944, Prime Minister Curtin directed defence to begin planning for the post-war period and indicated that once the services had determined their needs, or at least once, the government would indicate what funds would become available. All three services ended the war with quite grandiose force structure plans, none of which survived first contact with the government's fiscal reality. One of the Navy's more expansive versions included three aircraft carriers, six cruisers and 32 destroyers. Nevertheless, by the end of the Second World War, uh, the RAN was fairly confident that it could look to a future based on a force of two aircraft carriers, three air groups and two naval air stations. Now, as you'd expect, several people played important parts uh, in the RAN ultimately becoming a carrier navy. And the man who got the ball rolling, it was actually more like a hand grenade, um, was Admiral Sir Guy Royal, Royal Navy, who was our Chief of Naval Staff from July 41 till June 45. His opening move was to announce to the Advisory War Council in March 44 that the Royal Navy had offered the loan of a light fleet carrier and two cruisers. This emerged from Navy-to-Navy -Navy communications that bypassed formal government processes. Furthermore, the announcement came as a complete surprise to the other service chiefs and, more particularly, to the Defence Secretary Shedden, who felt that Royal was trying to steal a march on the other services. Nevertheless, both directly and indirectly, um, Royal managed to sow the seed in Curtin's mind. And although Curtin committed to nothing at that point, uh, there began a lengthy set of negotiations between the UK and Australia, mainly relating to issues of timing, cost and manpower. The next person uh, of consequence was Admiral Sir Louis Hamilton, Royal Navy, who was the next to follow on Chief of Naval Staff from June 45 to February 48. His approach was much more diplomatic uh, than Royals had been, and he recognised immediately that he needed to get the support of both Shedden and then uh, Prime Minister Chifley. So he worked very hard, especially on the Prime Minister, to convince him of the need for an independent defence capability in the post-war period. He also had to work on the Admiralty in London, which was becoming increasingly frustrated by Australia's prevarication and parsimonious approach to the whole business. Needless to say, he also had to counter RAF opposition to the whole idea of a naval era. But by August 47, Hamilton had gained government approval for a two-carrier navy. But even at that point, financial matters continued to cause troubles that would only increase over time. This was despite the offer by the UK to pay half the initial acquisition, perhaps an early example of buy one, get one free. Following Sir Lewis Hamilton, uh, we had Vi Admiral Sir Victor Smith, RAN, who went on to become both Chief of Naval Staff and Chief of the Defence Force Staff in later years, and has become known as the father of the Fleet Air Arm for his work in setting up the original organisation. FAT, as he was known throughout the Navy, was at this time a Lieutenant Commander Observer, who'd gained a lot of planning experience during his time flying with the Royal Navy during the war. He'd returned to Australia in late 1944 as part of a team involved in planning the Royal Navy's use of the airfields at Nowra, Jarvis Bay and Schofields in Sydney. And from mid-1945, before any government commitment had been received, uh, VAT was back in Navy office drafting an outline for the establishment of the fleet era. By late that year, that's 1945, he was back in the UK and he spent the next year in the Admiralty working on fleshing the, putting flesh on the bones of that initial plan. And the kind of things he had to take account of were oversight of delivery of that first carrier, 
the initial order of aircraft, recruiting and training air and ground crew, setting up an air stores organisation, renovating uh, the air station at Nowra, which had fallen into disrepair, and establishing air armaments and electrical facilities at that air station. He then returned to Australia in early 47 with three uh, RN, uh, that's Royal Navy officers, a senior aviator and the supply and aircraft maintenance specialist. And this was to continue setting up the local naval air organisation. But by the end of that year, 47, he was back again in the UK, this time looking after those air and ground crews who were undergoing training at that time with the Royal Navy. And having done so much to establish the air arm, uh, VAT had several later aviation-related command postings, including XO of HMAS Sydney uh, during, I think, the Korean War deployment in 1950, CO of the Naval Air Station, Nowra in 57, and CO HMAS Melbourne in 1961. And uh, the, the final um, really significant person in, in the picture was Admiral Sir John Collins, Royal Australian Navy, who was the Chief of Naval Staff from March 48 to February 1955. And he was the first Australian officer in that position. So while the decision to acquire the carriers was made before he became Chief of Naval Staff, there was still a lot of work to be done and some tricky issues to be traversed. Before his time, the Chief of Air Staff, that was Air Marshal George Jones, had strongly argued for the RAF to operate the carriers' air groups. But Hamilton had saved the fleet air arm from a premature demise. But there were still many critical eyes watching the Navy's efforts. Collins was fortunate also in having Admiral Farncombe commanding the fleet and he had previous carrier command experience. Collins also had an Imperial Defence College course mate, Commodore Guy Willoughby, Royal Navy, on loan to oversee um, some of aspects of the fleet air arms development. There were three real, really major aviation related issues that Collins had to resolve. First of all was there was ongoing doubt as to the future of the light fleet carrier in the Royal Navy and thus that Navy's capacity to support our carriers if we were to buy them. Much of the doubt focused on whether they could be fitted with steep catapults, which were deemed necessary for the jet aircraft which is starting to appear in service. An inability to take steam catapults would have been a real significant limitation and would have severely embarrassed us and placed the future of the carrier force at risk. So Collins had to decide to continue with the program without actually knowing for sure that it would be a success. He also had to manage government expectations over this issue, and that often meant keeping things from government until such time as problems were resolved. In all of this, though, he did come to acknowledge that the light fleet carriers would have limitations as to what types of aircraft they could operate in the future. Another of his major headaches was manpower, uh, with the Navy needing to expand at a time when it had significant recruiting and retention problems. And is there a time when the Navy doesn't have such problems? And this was because of the civilian economy ramping up for post-war development. As we will hear later, he resorted to a whole range of different solutions. His third major challenge already hinted at was money. Uh, the government applied strict budgetary limits on the services and apparent shortcomings in Navy's financial planning in the early stages of this program made government very wary of and unsympathetic to Navy requests for more money. He was not fully successful in dealing with this, noting the inability to fund the full modernisation of HMAS Sydney. But he did have significant wins on the aviation front, not least being able to deploy Sydney for a most successful operational tour in the Korean War. He was also able to wheedle a carrier out of the Royal Navy to fill in the gap before the delayed HMAS Melbourne was able to enter service. His very good judgement 
political skills and sound relationships both within defence and beyond ensure the early successes enjoyed by the fleet era. So it's becoming apparent that this was one of the largest undertakings by the Navy at the time and, and somewhat of a gamble. Uh, there were so many moving pieces to this that were they expressing nerves or were they confident that this would ultimately be a success? Or, Well, my sense is that um, they were by no means confident um, and uh, as we'll hear later on, the negotiations um, over the whole thing l lasted f for a couple of years um, and one of one of the real sticking points um, was was financial in that um, we really wanted to pay nothing if we could get away with it and as I'll get to later on too that the not so much the not so much the Royal Navy but the British government um, really did not want to go down that track for, for obvious reasons um, but and there, there were just so many things I don't think there's any question that they could have felt entirely confident that the whole process would work out Norman Lee. In 1948, the Melbourne Sun newspaper talked about flat-top fledglings. What was your mo motivation to join and what was your training pathway? I was um, 17 years old uh, studying for a, a diploma in mechanical engineering and perchance picked up a copy of the Melbourne Sun in 1947, opened a full-page ad, joined the Navy and fly also inviting ex-Air Force people, never gave it a thought, always wanted to fly, always wanted to be in the Navy, tossed in my study of the, for the diploma, uh, went through the interview process, fortunately it was in Melbourne, was selected, uh, put on the second course, the one and two courses were the same people who were initially interviewed, but the second course for the younger ones, we were entered as ratings, as they were called in those days, and we went through the recruit school, learnt how to uh, tie a rope, uh, how to uh, splice a rope, uh, all the important things you need to be a naval aviator. And so we had three months worth of that, and then we went to Point Cook to join the Air Force for an 18-month course. It was a very long course. In fact, we did six months ground school before we even saw an aircraft. But things got tightened up. Flew Tiger Moth, Wirraway and Airspeed Oxford, which was unusual, twin-engine aircraft. From there, we were given provisional wings. We had to qualify on deck landing to have our wings confirmed. And then it was off to the UK for a number of the number one OFS, which is Operational Flying School, where you flew the aircraft that you were going to operate in your squadron. That was at Lossiemouth in Scotland, and then over to Eglinton in Northern Ireland for OFS Part 2, where you learned how to use the aircraft. And it's often been said that OFS 3 was Korea, where we learned how to do it, which is a very good way of putting it. Um, Interesting enough, uh, there was one and two course as ratings, as they were called, sailors, acting leading hand, and three course for sub-lieutenants. So obviously have something had to happen, and uh, um, adjustments were made. We were commissioned, our seniority was commissioned to even it out, and uh, so we piled on with the four-year um, short service commission. Um, and then 33 years later, I retired. 
Fantastic. So it's safe to say that your initial pathway was is quite a successful one. And I would be safe in assuming that it would have been quite competitive at the time to enter via these pathways. I'm told it was, yes. Uh, but um, I must say, my course, two course, I was a little surprised at some of the chaps who were actually on it, and I wondered why they were. Uh, it was rather tragic. Um, two, we were flight graded. You did 10 hours if you couldn't handle it in 10 hours. It was either the main gate, you know, go back to Civilian Street or transfer to the Air Force as a navigator. And two of our course did. I remember the names, Pete Treneman and, uh, um, sorry, I can't remember one of the names. They joined the RAF as navigators and were both killed on their first flight oh. in, a, in an Anson. That's terrible. Such as fate. Toz Dadswell, you were coming into the Fleet Air Arm as a career naval college entrant. What was the perception of navi naval aviation as a specialisation for career generalist officers? And did the training differ at all? I joined the Navy as a 13-year-old in 1946, fully expecting to be a seaman officer specialising in navigation. However, after being posted to HMAS Sydney in 1950, which was the first aircraft carrier, I became interested in naval aviation, as did many others. As your question relates to RN College Officer Training in the Naval Aviation, I will talk briefly about that. Graduates, graduates from RN College, such as myself, followed the normal pattern of training, which was four years at the college, followed by four years to obtain, amongst other skills, a watchkeeping ticket. After that, one could select the specialisation of their choice. Several college graduated, graduates applied for naval aviation in 1948 and so were present in the squadrons when the carrier air groups were formed. The whole exercise of creating an RN fleet arm within the space of two years was a massive undertaking. It was completed on time and has since proved itself to be a most efficient fighting arm of the RAN. Thank you very much, Toz. Jack McCaffrey, there were other strands to the new fleet air arm. Can you briefly explain? Um, yes, look, thanks, Rob. Um, as Toz just mentioned, that the, the task confronting the planners in establishing the fleet air arm was huge. The permanent force strength of the Navy at that time was about 10,000 men. And to fully meet the demands of the anticipated air arm would probably require another 2,000 or so. As well as that, there was a significant demand for shore infrastructure that had to be set in place. And the major elements of the infrastructure were, as we've probably mentioned before, the, the, the Naval Air Station at Nowra, which had been used by both um, the Air Force and the Royal Navy during the Second World War, but had been allowed to deteriorate since then. So a lot of work was required to bring that up to a, a usable state. So Nowra, as we know it, Naval Air Station Nowra became and, and remains the home of the Fleet Air Arm today. Secondly, Schofield's Aerodrome in Western Sydney, which had been managed by the Air Force during the war, um, was evaluated for use as our second um, major airfield um, and also as an aircraft repair and storage yard, but, but would, be, would have been the home for the second carrier's air group had that transpired. Uh, so we moved into that in 1950-51. Um, 
and it operated as uh, an aircraft repair yard uh, for some time, but it was never ne needed for the, the second uh, air group. And so um, in 1955, it became the Apprentice Training Establishment, HMAS Narimba. Uh, the other airfield involved was Jarvis Bay Airfield, which is a satellite of, of NARA. And that was also used by the RAF and the Royal Navy during the war. Uh, and we started using it once the Fleet Arm had been formed for, for training uh, additional op operations out of uh, away from NARA, and it also became the home later on for our pilotless target aircraft operations. And the final piece of the, the infrastructure um, puzzle, if you like, was Beecroft Weapons Range on Beecroft Peninsula at Jarvis Bay, which aircraft used for bombing, rocketing and strafing, and ships used for naval gunfire practice. The challenge of building up the workforce was met by a very broadly based recruiting effort, and the main sources external to the Navy were uh, the loan of several hundred officers and sailors from the Royal Navy, uh, recruitment of ex-Royal Navy maintenance sailors, a recruitment of ex-Royal Navy, Royal, uh, Royal Australian Air Force and New Zealand Air, uh, Navy aircrew, and as we've just heard from, uh, from Norman in particular, recruitment in Australia of young men for direct entry aircrew and also uh, technical sailors. Within the Navy, there was also an expectation that some of the uh, almost 3,400 men serving in Royal Navy ships towards the end of the war would stay in the service and some of those would transfer across to the fleet arm. There was also, as um, both Norman and Toz mentioned, strong interest among junior officers and sailors in, within the Navy to build a career in aviation. And perhaps a, a, an excellent example of that on the officer front was uh, the Naval College entry of 1941. Um, six, there were 16 in that entry, 13 of them graduated in 1944, and of those, 10 asked to become aircrew, which is really quite staggering uh, when you think about the backgrounds uh, that those people would have had. Six were selected, three eventually flew operationally. The experiences of two of these young men is of uh, special interest to those of us in the Naval Studies group here. Uh, Peter Goldrick, the father of James, and Errol Stevens, the father of David. Peter Goldrick, later Captain Peter Goldrick, uh, was serving in HMAS Australia and determined one afternoon that they had to be more to life than being the officer of a day of a big ship in harbour. But of interest too, he, he said that if the attack class patrol boats had been in service at that time with, with the junior command opportunities that they provided, he would not have gone aviation, he would have chosen that particular path. Nevertheless, he enjoyed a very successful flying and general service career, including uh, flying in, in the, the Korean deployment, Korean war deployment that is, uh, and qualification as one of the RAN's first two qualified flying instructors, and he was the CEO of HMAS Stewart. Uh, Errol Stevens' uh, story was a little different. He also went on to be a captain, but his flying career was unfortunately much, much more brief. He qualified as a, a private pilot in England on, he, on his own account uh, while doing sub-lieutenant's courses in 1946, uh, and was then selected in 1947 to do the, fleet, the Royal Navy Fleet Air Arm pilot training and he was the only RAN student uh, on, on that particular course. He passed the course and passed the first part of the operational flying school subsequently. Um, and then in late 1948, while on the second part of his operational flying training, had to quit because of uh, a medical condition that would not allow him to continue flying. But as he had been presented with his wings, he continued to wear them. It's interesting to consider the fact that here was a previously unavailable opportunity for so many REN personnel to, to specialise in a previously non-existing area of Navy and how many people have gone on to have fantastic careers since. It's also quite impressive to consider the 
ability to create the technological or the technical area of the maintenance uh, almost out of nowhere. So uh, very interesting to consider. Norman Lee, the first of the aircraft carriers was HMAS Sydney. What was the feeling on joining her and who were some of the key personalities on board? Uh, I first joined Sydney in uh, May uh, 1951, uh, uh, right, with my squadron, 817 squadron, flying Mark 6 Fireflies. And uh, we were in uh, Port Lincoln when the buzz went round the ship, we're going to Korea. It was just a rumour at that stage, uh, which was subsequently confirmed. And uh, I must admit, there was a lot of excitement. You know, this is what we're supposed to be doing. And uh, so we didn't go to New Zealand on the cruise, which we were supposed to be going on. Immediately went back to uh, Nara to work up for um, what the particular roles each aircraft would be operating in. In my case, it was dive bombing. Unsuccessful, I might add. The, um, I was only a young sub-lieutenant, so obviously my field was not that great. Uh, my senior pilot, my CO, and above that, uh, Commander Air, I can't even remember who Commander Air was, so you can see where I was, right up to the bottom of the pecking order. Um, but it was happy, it was, um, particularly with Vat Smith as the commander. There's no question about that. He ran a very, very tight, taut ship. Um, and, um, yeah, it was, the ship was well worked up. Um, we were well worked up. We were ready. I, I think it's probably worth mentioning, too, that they, uh, we did rely quite a lot on um, the experience of some of the, the ex-Royal Navy uh, aviators. Oh, yes, very time. true. Yeah. Yes, yeah. in fact, yes. In fact, my senior pilot, my CO, were ex-RN. Hmm. Well, not ex-RN, they are RN on loan. Yeah. Toz Dadswell, Vat Smith has been mentioned a couple of times. From your experience, and also after having interviewed him in his twilight years, is there anything you can add? Thank you. I served under Admiral Sir Victor Smith on five different appointments and, as mentioned, was involved in the writing of his memoirs. I regard myself as, as being fortunate and privileged to have served under such a great officer. Sir Victor, usually referred to as VAT, graduated from the Royal Australian Naval College in 1930. After completing his junior officer training, he specialised as an observer. He had a distinguished record in World War II, with much of it spent with the Royal Navy Fleet Air Arm. Twice he was shot down and ditched in the sea, and twice he was serving in ships that were sunk by enemy action. While serving in HMS Ark Royal, he was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. In 1946, Commander Smith was sent to Australia House in London to assist in the planning of the RAN's Fleet Air Arm, a role which led him to be known as the father of the Fleet Air Arm. Many members of the Fleet Air Arm, including myself, saw that as quite a formidable figure. For example, in 1957, when he took command of HMAS Albatross, the Naval Air Station at Nara, he had adopted the catch cry second to none, and he expected everyone to be second to none, and woe betide anyone who let the side down. Fat had well-honed diplomatic skills, 
that were put to the test on several occasions. One example comes to mind when he was Chief of Staff in 1968, which was a challenging time for the RN. The RN was heavily involved in the war in Vietnam. There was an unfortunate incident when HMAS Hobart was attacked by an American F-4 Phantom. Two RAN sailors were killed and seven injured. This incident had the potential to cause serious tensions in the RAN-USN relationship. However, by employing his exceptional diplomatic skills, that was able to advise both governments on the best way to avoid the tragedy turning into a crisis. In 1970, Vat was promoted to the rank of Admiral and appointed to the position of Chairman Chiefs of Staff, now known as Chief of the Defence Force. There is no doubt that Vat was a perfectionist in his work and expected all who served under his command to operate at the same level of competence. His bravery and dedication to duty cannot be faulted. He was loyal to his country, the service and his family. He inspired and expected the highest of standards. I consider that to be a man of rare distinction and ability. He was modest and underspoken, yet with a commanding presence and a manner of warm personality and keen sense of humour. I got to know that very well in his latter years. In fact, we got to the stage where he called me Toz, and I called him Sir. <laughs> <laughs> to sum up, in my opinion, Sir Victor Albert Trumpersmith was a leader who cared about his nation, his navy, his men and their families. He was second to none. Thank you. Can I ask both Norman Lee and then Toz Dadswell to provide an incident that sticks in your mind of flying in those early days of the fleet era? Right. Well, the incident I'm going to tell you about, I almost killed myself. Um, uh, Sydney was a straight deck carrier. Uh, if you missed the wires, you went into a barrier. Uh, fortunately, in 254 deck lengths, I never did it. I never got a barrier. That's a, that's a great achievement. Anyway, in January of 51, his name was Smith, the pilot, hesitated. Instead of turning left, he turned right, hesitated again, hit the funnel, went over the side, he died. His observer, who I subsequently inherited, survived with a broken rib, I might add. And we're in strict instructions, if waved off, continue the turn to the left. Now, we mentioned Jarvis Bay airfield. We used to do dummy deck landings there. And uh, every time you touched down, you jinked to the right to clear the slipstream for the chap behind you. And it was sort of instinctively. And I was waved off shortly after I... I just joined the ship on the first deck landing and instinctively I turned right. As I did so, I realised I'd made a big mirror, but I flew up the ship's side into the funnel smoke. Now, the formula for lift includes density, and funnel smoke doesn't have the density, and the aircraft was literally falling out of the sky. Um, two things, I knew what not to do to recover, and also knew what to do to recover, which was a boot full of left rudder, uh, which slewed the aircraft around, saved the situation, and I was sent back to, to Nara just to sit and look and stare at the wall. Yes, I remember that day extremely well. That's remarkable. And how about you, Toz? 
Well, there are several incidents that spring to mind, but probably the most vivid is an incident that occurred on board HMAS Melbourne in 1963 during a family day display. I was one of the three pilots that flew Gannett aircraft onto the ship so we could give a demonstration of flying operations. There were so many families on board, it was necessary to find, divide the visitors into three groups. That meant we had to do, give three demonstrations. The plan was to do a catapult land, launch, carry out a touch and go, and then make an arrested landing. The first two sorties were carried out by two aircraft, for the third demonstration, all three aircraft would take part and on completion of the touch and go return to Albatross. I was not involved in the first sortie, but was to fly the lead aircraft for the second. And the first sortie went off without a hitch. An observer and I walked to our aircraft for the second sortie, and after pre-flight inspection, we climbed into our cockpits. And the order start the engines. I pressed the starter butter for the port engine. There's a dull thud. I assumed it was a starter cartridge misfire, and so selected the starboard engine, pressed the button. Cartridge fired, the propeller started spinning. I now had to concentrate on engine handling, which was a little complicated in the gannet. Once the revs reached ground, I could look up, and to my surprise, my observer, who I knew had been sitting in the cockpit, Behind me was actually on the flight deck waving to me. I know the aircraft director was giving me the cut sign and a group of firemen in fire suits were marching towards the aircraft with their fire hoses. I realised that something was wrong and quickly shut the starboard fuel cop. As the propeller slowed, so the front of the aircraft exploded with flames rolling back to the cockpit. Any pilot will tell you there's no future in staying in an aircraft that's on fire, especially when it's just been refuelled. I undid the cockpit harness, released my parachute. Now, I was aware I had an audience of mum and children, and I wanted to give the impression of being nonchalant. So I stepped out of the cockpit. A slight error of judgment because it's 12 feet above the deck. When I picked myself up, off the deck, I limped to the island and there watched them put the fire out. The uh, audience then broke out in applause. They all thought it was part of the demonstration. The uh, reason that it happened was that after the first sortie, an unqualified airman had replaced the cartridges in the port side and hadn't screwed the cap on properly. So when I fired it, the cap went up through the oil tank above it. The oil gushed out when I barbered engine, so it caught fire. But the spinning propeller meant that the flames were going underneath the aircraft, back to the wing and curling back over the trailing edge of the wing. That's what my observer saw. And sensibly, he left the aircraft. The uh, two remaining aircraft ended what was the third sortie, returned an hour, and I was left on board to face the paperwork. After the interrogations were over, I was allowed to return an hour by train. That gave me time to reflect upon what might have happened if I'd kept my head in that cockpit just another couple of seconds.
I was very lucky. As a follow-up, Toz, I previously mentioned that you witnessed the Melbourne Voyager collision from the air. Can you describe what you saw? The evening of Monday, 10th of February, 1964. It's one I'll never forget. The events are as vivid today as they were if it happened yesterday. And that night, the 10 fixed-wing aircraft of the Melbourne Air Group were practising touch-and-goes. Now, in touch-and-goes where the aircraft lands on board the carrier without the arrest hook being lowered, the pilot flies the aircraft onto the deck, and when the wheels touch the deck, he flies power, goes around and makes another circuit. On this particular evening, the flagship of the Royal Australian Navy, the aircraft carrier Melbourne, was carrying out workup trials following an extensive refit. The workup was designed to ensure that the systems and personnel of both ship and her aircraft were ready for sea duty. Involved in these trials was the GM-class destroyer HMAS Voyager. Four minutes to nine that evening, just as I joined the landing circuit, there was a brilliant flash of light which lit up the whole sky. The unthinkable had happened. Melbourne and Voyager had collided. It was the Navy's worst peacetime disaster. I immediately climbed to a thousand feet and radioed HMAS Albatross to scramble all available helicopters to sail the search and rescue aircraft from Jarvis Bay. I remained circling over the scene for an hour acting as the relay station between the ship and Albatross. After the collision, the forward section of Voyager turned turtle and sank in a very short space of time. The after section floated for a while before it too sank. By the time I left the scene of the accident, there were numerous helicopters had arrived. The 340 men on board Voyager that day, that night, 232 were rescued, but sadly 82 lost their lives. Dawn the next day, we had four fixed-wing aircraft and six helicopters in the search area. The sea was like a mill pond, but we didn't have any sightings of survivors in the water. And late in the afternoon, I advised my captain that we should cease the search, as I was concerned that after 36 hours without sleep, pilots were becoming fatigued. And with so many aircraft, such a small area, there was a risk, increased risk of a mishap in the air. Although there are many theories why Voyager turned the wrong way and there were two royal commissions into the tragedy, we still have no clear explanations of why Voyager made that fatal mistake. It's now come from various investigations the Navy was forced to view a number of matters, some very serious, some minor. The collision was a wake-up call for the RAN. Sad thing is the call had to come at such a dreadful cost. I subsequently commanded uh, Voyager's sister ship, Vampire, and I well recall our stationing position with, with the carrier was a thousand yards in the wake of the carrier, and that's where we stayed, a thousand yards in the wake of the carrier. Safe and careful. Jack, would you like to add to that? Uh, just a little personal anecdote, actually. Um, on that same night, the 10th of February, 11 years later, 1975, um, in a very similar area just off Jarvis Bay, um, we lost our only uh, tracker 
uh, went, went in after doing a bolter uh, from a night deck landing. Um, all four of the crew got out. Um, the air crewman was Petty Officer Joe Kroger. He'd found himself in the water on the 10th of February 1964 as well as he'd been a sailor on board HMAS um, Voyager. Listeners wishing for further information on the Voyager Melbourne tragedy uh, can find previous podcasts which cover the matter, Season 4, Episode 10 and 11 of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series. Jack McCaffrey. The Navy's desire to have two operational aircraft carriers was always going to be a challenge, especially in an era of rapid aeronautical technological change. Can you discuss this point? Well, a two-carrier force was always going to be a challenge, uh, and it became too much of a challenge for the RAN fairly quickly. Well, ultimately, even a one-carrier force became too much. I think there were three main reasons for the inability to support the two-carrier force as it was originally planned. The first was, as you mentioned, rapidly evolving aviation technology. And there are two aspects to this. Firstly, we were establishing the fleet air arm at just the same time that jet aircraft were beginning to enter service. And in virtually every aspect of aviation, jet aircraft were proving to be bigger, heavier, and faster than their piston engine predecessors. This meant that some categories of aircraft, military aircraft, especially attack and all-weather fighters, would need bigger ships from which to operate, and that the smaller carriers, like the fleet, light fleet carriers that we were acquiring, would be limited in the types of aircraft they could operate, and thus be limited in operational capability. Secondly, the greater performance of these jet aircraft generated substantial changes in the design of the carriers themselves. And these included the angled flight deck, which enabled aircraft to fly away after missing the arrestor wires, rather than engaging the crash barrier as Norman has discussed earlier. The steam catapult, which extended the capacity to launch heavier aircraft, and the mirror landing system, which provided pilots with glide slope information on final approach. The real issue for us was that these changes became available only after the agreement to purchase the two carriers was made, and thus added significantly to the cost as well as delaying the delivery schedule for HMAS Melbourne, which was the second carrier, and ultimately the only one that received the modification package in the end. The second major issue was money. Um, there had been extended negotiations between both British and Australian governments, as I've already mentioned. On the one hand, the Australian government wanted to get out of the deal as cheaply as possible, and one of our opening approaches was to seek the free transfer of the two carriers. On the other hand, the British Treasury, understandably, wanted Australia to pay something for the two ships, and it had developed a fairly unforgiving attitude to Australia because of what it had assessed as a miserly attitude on our part during the war. The acquisition cost for the two carriers, including armament and stores, was £3.65 million. That was the initial cost. Probably because our planners were acutely aware of the tight financial position, they didn't allow for any significant cost increase in the project. That meant that as soon as the need for any additional funds emerged, the Navy had to approach government for them. This did not go down well with the Chifley government, especially as the cost of the proposed mods was in the vicinity of half a million pounds per ship. Quite a lot, given that the Navy annual budget at the time was really no more than about 15 million pounds. The third element of the overall challenge was predictably people. Uh, we were starting from scratch to build an air arm and were doing so at a time when all of the services were finding it difficult to attract people. And we had to find enough to crew two carriers, including seamen, technical and supply personnel. We had to find air crew for the planned three air groups and the ground crew to support those air groups and their squadrons. Ultimately, however, it really was the combination of technological change and constrained budgets 
that prevented the two-carrier force from becoming a reality, and in fact, which stayed with us for the entire period in which we had carriers in service. Despite all this, less than four years after its formation, Australia committed its aircraft car carrier Sydney to the Korean War. Norman Lee, was the ship and her aircrew well prepared for the operations in Korea? Yes, and unquestionably, we went back to Danara, uh, as I mentioned earlier, to work up. Uh, my squadron was operating the Mark VI Fireflyer, which was anti-submarine, basically, with no cannon. So we had to take our sister squadron's aircraft, which was Mark V Firefly, which had cannon. Uh, why they, they, that squadron didn't go, I don't know. Thank God they didn't. We went instead. Our aim was to dive bomb, and uh, we set off. And I must say, the, the Firefly didn't like dive bombing. It was very slippery in the dive, lots of rudder trim problems. Um, and as we subsequently learnt in, uh, when we got to Korea, you can dive bomb a bridge, uh, straddle it, and the bridge is still there, depending on the structure. So we were forced to go to low-level bombing, which we did. We just used our anti-submarine probably with delayed fuses, just hoping that you got in before the CO's bombs went off, which obviously I did. Um, um, we didn't do, get to do much strafing, um, but um, it was mainly bombing. Uh, and it, the ship, as I recall it, you know, being one of the younger ones, was really truly thriving. You know, it was hot to go. It was good. Did, didn't you set some records for, for, for sorties? Yes, we did. 130-something. Uh, ops in one day, we held the record. Yes. It must have been a very exhausting period of time for you. Uh, not particularly, no. <laughs> you're well trained and in your yeah, element. And yes, that's, what, that's what I was trained for. I spent three years to get to that point, and that's what we did. And it was, it was good. Yeah. I commend to listeners a previous podcast you can listen to on HMAS Sydney in the Korean War, recorded in 2018, which features Norman Lee. Jack McCaffrey and Fred Lane. As mentioned from those early days, the fleet air arm has continued to serve the fleet for 75 years, with the missile-armed Seahawk Romeo helicopters its current spearhead. Can I ask each of the panel for their final thoughts on the formation of the fleet air arm? Uh, we'll go to you, Toz, first, please. I think that the formation of the Australian Naval Aviation Branch was a sensible and timely addition to the RAN inventory. 1944, as I mentioned, the War Advisory Council stated the aircraft carrier was an essential part of any modern naval force. I think this statement is true today, and it was back then. As I see it, any Australian Defence Force must be equipped to deal with the realities of the Australian situation. The fact that we are an island state being foremost should we need to project air power in our region, then it'll have to come from seaborne capability. The fleet air arms involvement in the Korean War, EMU flight in Vietnam, and the Gulf deployments has shown that Australian naval aviators can perform with the highest military standard. Naval aviation is a weapon that Australia needs and always will need. It's unfortunate that the RN no longer has what we would call a typical aircraft carrier, but it does have the amphibious assault ships 
Canberra and Adelaide, which are capable of projecting sea power in our region. Perhaps one day soon, those in power will recognise the pressing need to reintroduce to the naval inventory fixed-wing aircraft in the form of VSOL aircraft. Had to get that plug in. Norman, your thoughts? I, I think that the saddest part, the, the flitter arm went through a number of occasions where we were going to be cancelled, you know. And one of the statements by the then government, I've forgotten which one it was, was that we don't need a fleet arm as opposed to it's too expensive, which would have been the honest answer. Um, but from my point of view, um, having grown up during the, the Second World War, I, mean, I was a 10 years old when it started, and uh, so I'm pretty familiar with what was going on in aviation. And to me, it was all perfectly logical that um, you had the carriers and you had aircraft operating for the carriers, and that was the, the progression which I saw would be the future. Wasn't to be. Thank you for that. And finally, Jack. Um, look, I'd like to make two points. Firstly, getting the fleet arm off the ground was a real struggle. There was a lot of opposition to the concept within defence, uh, with Secretary Shedden himself convinced at the end of the Second World War that the RAF was the service to which Australia should look for its future defence. Unsurprisingly, the Air Force had the same view and fought the creation of the fleet air arm hard and, of course, continued to do so long after the initial battles yeah. were lost. Additionally, the Navy was not favoured by the Chif Chifley Labor government, mainly because of the strong British influence, especially in the Navy leadership something that had long since disappeared from the other two services. This was the main reason, I think, why Chifley pressed so hard for Admiral Collins to become the Chief of Naval Staff in 1948, when others thought that he was not yet ready. So the establishment of the Fleet Air was an outstanding effort overall. Secondly, the value of the effort was demonstrated fairly clearly just more than two years afterwards when, as we've heard, HMAS Sydney was uh, deployed and performed really well in the Korean War that cutbacks were experienced very soon after the end of the Korean War and that the demise of fixed-wing flying was announced in 1959, just a decade after it all began, suggests, unfortunately, that operational excellence is no guarantee of organisational longevity. Sadly, that is all we have time for. My thanks to Toz Dadswell, Norman Lee and Jack McCaffrey. Today's podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales with the assistance of the University's Creative Media Unit. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us. And if you liked this episode, please let other people know of the Australian Naval History podcast series. Goodbye for now.